Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric. I am so glad that you are here today. Uh, happy March to everybody. I want to say a welcome to everyone that might be in the room with us today. Hello to anyone that's joining us live online right now. I know we got Linda and Eli and Donna and some other people. So welcome. I uh, also want to give a special welcome to anyone that might be watching or listening later on in the week. Now, Big reason why I'm up here is I want to say welcome to the guests that we have with us today. We've prayed for you. We really do want this to be a low-pressure environment for you. Uh, so we've developed a few avenues to serve you and answer any questions that you may have today. Uh, in fact, the next few minutes are primarily for you, our guests. Uh, one way that we hope to serve you is by connecting with you, and we really do. That's our, our big heart. So we'd love for you to share your information with us so that we can follow up with you. We can get feedback from you as well. Uh, anybody, not just guests, can be added, uh, can update their info or be added to the email list. Now, there are two ways to do that. Uh, the first of which is by hard copy. Uh, so in the seat back in front of you, there's a little info card. Um, you can fill that out, put that in the offering box on the way out, um, if you would. The second way to do that is electronically. So if you're averse to pen and paper, or if you're like, who carries a pencil anymore, or whatever, uh, we've got um, a way to do that electronically. And if you'd like to complete an info card that way, you can do so on the Next Steps page of our website, or by using the Version app, which is an app that we love here. The instructions on how to use that are up on our screens right now. This app is super useful, not just for uh, our guests, but also during the gathering to follow along, to take notes and even give that way if you'd like to. Um, one of the other cool things you can do on the Uversion app is make Centerway Church your church. One of the cool things that happens when you do that is you can connect with people uh, that call Centerway their home and keep up with the reading plans. And there's so many more things we can do that way. Now, I already mentioned giving through the app, and of course, like I said, uh, this is for our guests, and we don't expect our guests to give. Um, but if you attend regularly and you prefer not to use the app, there's a couple ways that you can give as well. Uh, you can use an envelope in the in front of you and place that in the Centerway offering box, or you can give by going to the Give tab of our website. Imagine that. Uh, today is week eight, or excuse me, week nine of our series, Built to Be, our last week in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, if you missed the last series or any of this one, uh, it's all on the website. There are uh, free Nehemiah journals in the back. If you want to grab those, you definitely can if you haven't had one yet. Uh, and even though this is the last week, you can still grab one now and uh, take it with you to go. We have resources for this series so that you can connect and engage throughout the week. Uh, we have things like wallpapers for your devices, Spotify playlists to listen to, social media channels, Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals uh, that you can subscribe to on the website or by using the info card. If you visit the messages page of the website, you can access those resources and even more. Now, one of the things that we highly value at Centerway is taking a next step. Uh, we have uh, area of our website devoted to it. We have an area of our uh, gathering space devoted to it. And uh, we really authentically believe that every single person uh, that can hear my voice has a next step in their journey with Jesus, whether you've known him since the day you were born uh, or you're still kind of processing what it looks like uh, to, to live like he actually exists. Uh, you have a next step. And so, um, like I said, there's a next step area in the back. There's a page of our website. Um, and there are so 
many uh, ways that we want to come alongside you and help you discover what that next step is. You can check the calendar page too of our website. Uh, the reason why I'm going to point that out specifically is because two weeks from today on March 17th at 6 o'clock, we'll be having our annual vision meeting. Our vision meeting is really unique. It's a way that uh, we'll, we're able to come together, uh, yes, to discuss annual business, uh, our two, 2024 vision, and also have a time to worship and pray together. So it's a really unique night. It's a really special night. Um, and so we'd love for you to put that on your calendar. Uh, one note for our online church family today, uh, we'll be taking communion here today at the end of our gathering. If you want to participate in that, you can. You can grab bread at home, um, crackers, juice, whatever you've got, emblems to symbolize Jesus' body and blood uh, so that you can take communion with us after the message. Now, if you're in the room today and like me, you kind of walked by that table at first, uh, this is a great opportunity now to go back to the back table and grab uh, an emblem, um, one for each of your family members, just so you know. Now, finally, if you do have questions, if you do have feedback for us, ideas for us, or you need prayer for anything, the best way to communicate with us is by email, connect at centerwaychurch.com. Now here's what to expect for the rest of the gathering today. Claude is gonna be communicating from the Bible. Then after that, we're gonna to respond to the word by worshiping through singing. And it is gonna be an incredible day. I am so, so looking forward to what God has in store for us today. Uh, can we bow together and just ask God's blessing on what he's gonna do in this place? Lord, we are so thankful that uh, you are in the midst uh, of our worship, Lord God, that as we gather together, that you're here. You're not just some uh, aloof king somewhere else, Lord. You're present with your people. And today, God, we need your presence like we've never needed it before. Lord, would you open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts, Lord, to, to speak to us and to show us whatever it is that you want to do in our lives today, God. Uh, we use this time to give our lives to you. Pray that you would do with them what you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Eric. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Centerway. My name is Claude. My wife, Meredith, and I are the lead pastors here and uh, excited to uh, be with you this morning and continuing on in our journey. As was already mentioned, uh, we're taking communion today, so this is going to be up here for when Eric comes up. So in case you're wondering, it's not like for me to take a snack while I'm preaching or something. Um, the... Uh, as we, uh, as we come into today, as was mentioned, we're concluding our series named Built to Be. Built to Be. And uh, in doing so, we're wrapping up the book of Nehemiah, which seems incredible. Uh, today's talk is entitled Whole. Whole. So as followers of Jesus, we are built to be whole. And I realize that every week, as is typical, there are people at all different places in their spiritual journey. And so you may be here and not certain that there is a God or questioning whether or not there's a God. And so whether you're at the, uh, the, the searching portion of your journey or whether you're a committed follower of Jesus and anywhere in between, uh, what we're talking about is we're talking about the reality of when we enter into following Jesus, there is a way in which we are built and we come alive in the midst of that. And so we're built to be whole, built to be whole. I wanna start things off today by kind of considering the season that we're in. Uh, we're currently technically in winter, um, which of course, it always seems like it's a never ending journey, especially in the New York area. Um, but uh, it's been rather mild this year, which is kind of cool. And uh, we are 
kind of heading into spring. Spring is right around the corner. Uh, in fact, the first day of spring is March 19th. And so we are really, really close to, uh, to spring. And uh, I think we're already sensing it. I know I'm already sensing it. The days are longer, which is amazing. Like whenever you're like, you know, you're coming home and the sun is still up. There's something more exciting about that. It's rather depressing to like wake up in the dark, come home in the dark. It's like, ah. And so um, it's just, it's exciting. The days are longer. The weather's been a little bit warmer. Um, in some cases, we're paying the consequences in our sinuses because it's like boiling hot one day and then it's freezing. I, I, the one part I despise about this season is you wake up in the morning bundled up, you're wearing a coat or whatever, and then by the time you come home, you're wearing short sleeves and you're wondering why you're sweating to death. And you're like, just decide, world. Um, <clears throat> but it's awesome. This idea of spring around the corner, um, birds are chirping. Uh, there's even signs of life on vegetation, all that stuff coming alive. Um, growing up, I loved spring. Now, to be completely transparent, I think as a typical, you know, upstate New Yorker, or Western New Yorker, or whatever you want to classify us as, I know some people have some really strong opinions about that, um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, based on where we live, we kind of get picked on a little bit because we say that we love the fall. I, I don't really know why that's a negative thing, um, but I really do love the fall. I love the change in the, in the seasons and the beauty of the fall, but growing up, there was something special about this idea of spring as well and uh, the idea that everything was coming alive. I had a unique passion and joy around it. Uh, the reason why I would get really excited is because growing up, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've maybe heard me kind of complain of the woes of uh, the fact that we heated our home with a wood stove. And so every one of my summers, everybody was like, hey, I'm going to Aruba. We're taking off to Florida and everything. I'm like, oh, I'm splitting wood like a worker in the forest all summer. <laughs> like I'm dodging trees that are felled. And, uh, so the, uh, the idea of spring meant this bottomless pit known as the wood stove would finally stop eating. And so for a, a season, all of a sudden it's like, I don't have to haul any firewood. I don't have to, to bring in any wood. I don't have to split anything because normally at the end of the winter, depending on how much wood had been split, sometimes I'm splitting wood in the snow because it was a really cold winter. And so all the, the woes, it's amazing kind of journey that I was on. You know, I went off to college and my dad bought a log splitter. He's like, uh, dad, what's this beautiful piece of equipment that you have? in the yard now. And he's like, oh, well, my wood splitter went off to college, so I had to buy a new one. I'm like, nah, God will judge you. Um, then I got married and he installed central heating. Not a lie. Um, oh, and also the best part of the entire story is what my dad does for a living is uh, heating and air conditioning. That's what he does. So oh, I probably need to talk to a therapist. Anyway. So the, the fact is, uh, all of a sudden, I didn't have to split any wood anymore. And, and so spring meant a, a bit of relaxation. And all of a sudden, the windows were open. And there was fresh air blowing through the home. And uh, you know what I'm talking about. Like, we're right on the cusp of those. Uh, we had our sliding glass door open the other day. And just the fresh air, it's, it's so invigorating. And it's this natural progression. It's this natural progression of the seasons and something incredible happens right as spring comes. There's this thing called spring cleaning and uh, maybe you've experienced it, right? The, the idea of like, oh my goodness, everything's fresh. Like, let's just clean things up. Let's organize some things. And I uh, 
I, specifically as a kid, but even as an adult, I love organizing things. I know that makes me sound so weird, but I, I love organizing things. I love there to not be clutter. I want to just clarify things. I want things to be clear and clean. And so this idea of like spring coming and a fresh start was like, oh, I love this. I love the new life kind of flexing in. And I want to tell you, there's a question I'm going to ask that you might have opposition to depending on how you're wired, but bear with me as I ask the question and bring some clarity. The question is this, as we move into the text, the question is, why is the idea of spring cleaning so appealing to us? Now, I know some of you are like, uh, but it's not. You know, like, what do you mean by that it is appealing to us? I, I realize we're all wired differently. I know some of you are like, oh my goodness, if we do any type of spring cleaning, I'm already getting stressed about the idea of that happening. But you have to notice something about the way the question was asked. Why is the idea, the idea of spring cleaning appealing to us? So I said idea, and I, I don't believe there might be some, but I don't believe, once I explain it, I don't think that there will be, but I don't believe anyone is opposed to the idea of spring cleaning. In fact, I want to submit to you that the idea of spring cleaning is rather energizing in concept. Now, the execution of it has mixed opinions. Uh, the ripple effect of those that might be uber cleaners in your family that you're like, no, I pay the consequences of their compulsion. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying the idea of a spring cleaning is appealing to us because it evokes a sense of a fresh start. And we like fresh starts. We like new beginnings. As a kid, we really loved the do-over, right? Like that's what we would scream and proclaim, do-over, only if we were on the losing side, right? If we're on the winning side, we're like, no do-overs, man. No do-overs, man. We, we like the idea of new beginnings. There's an optimism that comes with spring, the sunshine, the cool breezes, the flowers blooming, the branches budding. Suddenly there's life all around us where there was this coldness and this sense of almost like death and dormancy. All, dormancy? Is dormancy a word? What? Dormancy. Dormancy. If I use it three more times, it'll be my word. Anyway, uh, so uh, that at least I know when I'm making words up, right? <laughs> Like, I'm just going to keep rolling with it. So suddenly there's life all around us. Things are waking up. There's excitement. There's anticipation. We like fresh starts. That's the bottom line. No matter where you are or where you fall in the area of cleaning, we all like a fresh start. And today's text is about that on some level. Honestly, the book of Nehemiah ends on a rather harsh note. <laughs> in fact, if you aren't reading it with a larger perspective of what it is that God is doing, it paints a picture that humanity is kind of destined to fall short of God's standard, no matter how many fresh starts they're provided. It's a little bit kind of depressing at face value. Last week, we talked about Eliashib, and if you've missed any of this series and you want to check it out or catch up in any way, you can always look at our messages page on the website, and you can do so. But last week, we talked about a, a priest named Eliashib and how he had given in to the influence, the influence around him, the influence of culture, the influence of relationships, and all of the cultural and relational pressures influenced him. And now we see, as we continue this chapter and conclude this book, we see that he isn't alone in his unfaithfulness to God. In fact, the people as a whole are getting wrapped up in the world around them, and they're neglecting their relationship with God. 
most obviously by them violating the Sabbath. And Nehemiah kind of calls them out on it. And so I'm going to read verses 11 through 12 of chapter 13. It says this, So I, meaning Nehemiah, confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So we see Nehemiah confronting the people of their neglecting of God. And he's kind of getting in their face about it. He's calling them out. He's saying, this is not all right. You see, based on this text and what it is that we knew earlier, the the people of God, the people of uh, Israel have decided to stop tithing. And so the way that they deal with their treasure reveals deeper trust issues that they have with God. And I want to submit to you today that the, the same is true with us. That's the way that that we function as well. If we want to understand what we care about, we can just look at how we spend our money. Like, that's not rocket science. And maybe um, to be completely transparent, I can even share it more specifically with myself because I know that anytime you talk about money within church, it's like, oh, he's talking about me. No, I'm not. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about us. And so I can talk about seasons of my life where I thought, you know what? Maybe what I need to do is withhold some of this. I worked hard for this. And so if I can just create my own sense of stability, then I can come from a place of peace. And and every time there's this tension that when we are unwilling to open our hands before the Lord, there's something that makes us feel like there's a scarcity. Like we need to gather, we need to work harder. Like we get concerned about how it is that we function and how stable our life will be. And we function out of fear and concern. And so I'm speaking very much for myself. And for us as humans, how we spend our money reveals the true affections of our hearts. That's true. And that's what's being addressed here in Nehemiah. How it is they dealt with their treasure. And so Nehemiah addresses that first. He says, listen, you have neglected this. It's not okay. And so the people respond. Now what's interesting is there's a pattern here where Nehemiah dictates to people what it is that they need to do in order to be in right relationship with God, and then the people follow suit. And so it's kind of this command and control relationship. <laughs> and it's really, re- it's religiosity. And in some way, in our culture, we'd call that manipulation, right? Someone gets up in the front of the room and says, listen, if you love God and you want God to love you, do this. And you're like, ah, I don't wanna. Like, well, he says I have to. You're like, hmm, is this spirituality? Or is this guilt? And sometimes we function out of guilt rather than relationship. And so don't mishear me. I'm not trying to function out of guilt. I'm not trying to leverage guilt. But we see a sense of that within Nehemiah. He was present with them. They worshiped the Lord. They feel convicted about the cycle that they'd seen in their past. The cycle of their forefathers falling out of relationship with God. And they're saying, listen, we want to stop that. And so Nehemiah says, okay. Let's move forward. And then Nehemiah leaves for a season. That's what last week talked about, the beginning of this chapter. He comes back and they've all fallen into the same bad habits. And so what does he do? He corrects them. He says, listen, behave. So they do. How they spend their money reveals the affections of their heart. You may not like it, but it's true. Truth also is, we're not built to strive. We're built to be. 
that's the nature, the nature of the, the tension that's being revealed in the text as we journey through Nehemiah. And it's the reason why it's the, the title of the series is because in our culture, we aren't good at being. We're really good at doing. We're really good at doing. If we can get a list, then we decide to do it or we decide not to do it, but it's really contingent about doing and it's not often based on being. In fact, the idea that we're sufficient enough, that we're loved as broken as we are by God, it's kind of a difficult pill to swallow. We're like, yeah, but I haven't, I haven't done the right things. I'm like, yeah, but you can be his child. I'm like, yeah, I don't know that I've earned it. And we just have that jacked up theology and this cycle of maybe I need to strive to be loved. Our trust in God is revealed in how we rest in his will and his provision. This type of rest has a biblical name. It's called Sabbath. So let me say it one more time so you can understand. Our trust in God is revealed. It's shown in how we rest in his will. Not strive and are discontent and frustrated at our will being ignored or trying to impose our will. No, a rest that God is sovereign. A rest in his will and his provision. This type of rest is called Sabbath. And Nehemiah witnesses the Jewish people working like people who have no relationship with God. In other words, the way they deal with their money, the way they're dealing with their treasure, and their unwillingness to rest reveals their lack of trust relationship with God. If you're anything like me, you don't like anything about that. (laughs) Because because we like to do, we like to earn. Our society says, if you don't have it, work harder, earn it, save, be responsible. And our, our culture also says, listen, if you rest too much, we have a name for it. It's called millennial. Oh, wait. What? Oh, what happened there? No, that was funny. Trust me. They think it's funny too. Now, it, <laughs> if you don't want to work, we have a name for it. It's called lazy, right? And that's why generations look at previous generations and they get frustrated. Well, that's as old as time. We can look back. Every generation has looked at the generation prior and, and been like, oh, they're all sticks in the muds. And that generation looks at the younger generation and Looks at them with disdain, like, oh my God, I walked uphill everywhere I went. Everywhere I went was higher and harder. And I worked until I fell asleep. And you know what we called sleep? It was called blinking. So I don't know why you're so lazy. You know, like, every generation. And that's okay. Like, that's human nature. It's the way we function. The way we deal with our finances and our unwillingness to rest reveals our lack of trust relationship with God. So make sure you hear me now. I am not saying the Bible says Christians should be lazy. I'm not saying that. In fact, I can give endless scripture, well, not endless, but I can give a lot of scripture that talks about that we should work diligently that we've been gifted and skilled and that we need to leverage into the the work that needs to be done, to work hard. And that we even deserve a fair wage for the work that we've done. Scripture talks about that. 
Scripture also talks about how we should do our work unto the Lord, that our work should actually be a form of worship to him. So what I am saying is that Christians, followers of Jesus, people that profess to be in relationship with God, shouldn't work as if their, prov- their provision and their stability is contingent upon their own efforts. You see, that's the linchpin. That's where it starts to tilt, 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 because that's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It messes with our own idea of what our value is. And so I'm going to repeat it one more time. Followers of Jesus shouldn't work as if their provision and their stability is contingent upon their own efforts. Listen, we work as a form of worship. Someone that understands the transformative work of the gospel and who God is understands that the reason we have breath in our lungs is because of the grace of God. We woke up this morning because of God's grace. The gifts that we have, the skill sets that we have, they're a gift from God. The ability that we have to execute those things in the form of work is because of God. That all of what it is that we do has a source, and so therefore we are simply stewards of our time and our talent and our treasure. And if we are stewards of such things, then suddenly we don't have to strive. We can be content in being, and we can realize that our provision comes from the Lord. And so suddenly, we can function from a place where we realize that our work is a form of worship. And we know that God will provide. And it's out of that trust relationship that when God provides, we worship him again with that which he has provided. That we turn to him with the first fruits of our labor. And that we rest in his presence And we rest in the reality that he is at work in our world, that he is our creator, that he hung the stars in the sky, that he gave us breath, that he wove us together in our mother's womb, all scripture. But we can't rest in that if we think, listen, this whole thing, it's contingent on me. And so I'm going to lean in, and so therefore I find my identity in what it is that I do. And if ever it's difficult for me to do what I'm doing, or if I lose my job, or if I get cut from the team, or if, I, if that person breaks up with me, or if that marriage ends, or all the things, suddenly my identity weighs in the balance. Because I never really understood who I was as a child of God. I found my identity in that which I did, and where it is that I found love, and where it is that I found value in the effort that I put forth, in the things that I accumulated, in the stuff that I have. And you've seen it time and time again, and our culture leans into it more. Leans into it more and says, listen, the harder you work, the more you'll get. But if we can get to a place where it's a relationship of worship and an awareness of who God is, then it's this cyclical environment where we can actually hold freely and openly to that which God has provided and offer all that we do as a form of worship. And every day is a day of joy and anticipation of how it is that God will lead us and direct us. You see, that's entirely different. That relationship is not striving. That's not the striving relationship we see around us. And it's, it's offered and available to those that proclaim to follow Jesus to say, I can rest in him. I can rest in the awareness that I am a child of God, 
that my life is larger, that the purpose that I have is greater than just my bank account or the stuff that I can accumulate, but actually I have an eternal purpose. And God is writing a narrative through me and through this community and I get to participate in an eternal work and I can leverage all that I am for something greater than myself. And suddenly my legacy is something that goes into eternity instead of something that can be stored and just burned and die or all the things that we think in this world. If we go on and read verses seven through, uh, 17 through 18, it says this, then, meaning, then I, meaning Nehemiah again, then I confronted, one more time he's confronting, Nehemiah's like on a rampage, right? Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now you need to understand, we're we're looking at the entire narrative, the entire story of Nehemiah. And as we look back, like I said, if you've been with us, you know this. If not, I'll summarize quickly. This this city has been in ruins. And when they come in and they begin to rebuild the wall, they look and they have the the law read to them. And as they read the law and they read the history of their forefathers, they realize that time and time again, the people of Israel have been unfaithful and God was faithful. And then the cycle happens again. They pursue lesser things They love the things of this world. They distance themselves from God. They reap the consequences. God comes in, forgives them, and restores them, and they get a fresh start, and the cycle begins again. And as this story is being read, and the story of the law and the history, they begin to mourn, and they begin to weep, and they start to make proclamations and oaths, and they say, we're never going to return to that. And so they engage in the festivals that, that that their forefathers had. They remember what it is that God has done. They enter into a deeper relationship. They have scripture read to them. And because of their exile, they don't understand the language. And so it's actually being interpreted to them in groups by priests that are located because they don't even understand the Hebrew language. And they, they just weep and they're broken and they say, God, never again. Never again. Fresh start. Things are going to change. And Nehemiah leaves their presence And they go right back to square one. And so he's confronting them. And he's saying, you know where this leads. We were just there, guys. What are you doing? (laughs) Remember you said we wouldn't get here again. And here we are. We broke this cycle together And now you have begun the cycle one more time. I don't know about you, but that kind of resonates, right? (laughs) God, I'm never going to do this again. I just did it again. (laughs) Listen, I am going, I'm not going to get angry. I am not going to get angry. I'm not even kidding. Will you shut up? I am praying. (laughs) I'm not going to get angry. God, just forgive me for that. But you know. God, you know. I mean cycle after cycle these commitments these decisions that we make that are what that are contingent upon our behavior and we've reduced the love of God to this idea that if we misbehave we're suddenly unloved 
God knows how broken we are. And so they just continue the cycle. And Nehemiah doesn't really stop there. He then pulls back another layer. He pulls back another layer. He's addressed their money. He's addressed their Sabbath, the way they rest. And now he pulls back another layer. And this one, this one seems intense. And maybe even, honestly, inappropriate. If you don't understand the culture. And so I'm going to read it and then I'm going to explain the culture. Verses 24 through 25 say this. Uh, Verse 23, which is not projected, talks about how Jewish people are marrying people from other nations. And then it picks up in verse 24. And half of their children spoke the language of, of the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people, the different nations that they had married into. Verse 25. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. He made them beautiful. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> that's funny. If you're like listening, I think often about if you're just listening to the podcast, like you have no idea what I just did. You should be here. What's wrong with you? Get out of your car, drive to church. Anyway, um, <laughs> wait, get out of your car, drive to church? Made no sense. Switch. Okay, I'm moving on. Uh, pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath. I made, <laughs> I made them take an oath. Can you imagine that? Kids, love God. Sit down. I'm going to make you take an oath. You shut up or I'll beat you and pull your hair out. (laughs) Praise God. I don't know. My church is kind of strict, but they never did that. Anyway, (laughs) I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. This sounds intense, like I said, even a little bit inappropriate. It actually sounds like there's some racial tension. Like, like what's Nehemiah's deal? Well, what does he have against these nations? (laughs) It's not. As we discussed last week, this is not a racial thing. This is an influence thing. These other nations don't serve the Lord. In fact, they're known for idolatry. And so, Nehemiah is saying, listen, they're going to pull you away from a relationship with the living God. But more directly here, he's addressing that as a result of these marriages, their kids don't know Hebrew. Their kids don't know Hebrew. They speak the language of Ashdod, is what he's saying. Now, that might just kind of go right over our heads, unless you understand the context that I explained in the beginning, just a couple moments ago. These people that were in exile sat at the reading of Scripture in Hebrew and were unable to understand it. And it required a priest to translate from Hebrew into their language so that they could understand what it is that's being spoken. And now, instead of repairing what it is that they had committed to repair, they have further muddied the water by ensuring that their children don't even have the ability to speak in Hebrew. Now what that means in that time, at that day and age, if you didn't speak Hebrew, you didn't understand or have access to the law of God. You could not be in relationship with the Lord unless you understood the language. We take for granted the fact that we have translations of scripture in different verses. But he's addressing that as a result of these marriages, their kids don't speak Hebrew, and it's not a control thing. 
it means much like the first time they read the law, their children will be unable to understand scripture when it's read in the temple. It means they're repeating the cycle. They're repeating the cycle. Commentators wonder if he were to come back in and these relationships, these marriage relationships had Hebrew as the main language and had them serving the Lord in a way that they had not walked away with both their treasure and the Sabbath, would Nehemiah have balked at all? We don't really know. We don't ultimately know, but we know non-Hebrews were welcomed into the city wall. And so we know there isn't this racial concern. It's more the idea that they're risking the stability of their kids' access to God. They're repeating the cycle that caused them to mourn. But now they're crippling their children's relationship with God. Are we repeating a cycle that's crippling our children's ability to engage with God? Are we guilty of that? I'm not accusing, I'm asking. It's worth considering the text and the implication. Have we created hurdles and difficulty for our children, for our nieces, for our nephews, for our young ones, if we don't have flesh and blood children? Have we created hurdles for them to not be able to easily access God because of the life that we have lived, because of that which we have modeled, because of how we deal with finances and rest, because of the priorities that we have? Again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to ring the bell of what scripture is revealing. Because at the end of our lives, we may have a whole pile of money and a bunch of stuff. And we won't be there to direct how our kids blow it, who has access to it, how the government takes it. We don't know. But we will know whether or not we've created a legacy connected to eternity and connected to access to God? Have we stabilized them in the things that will carry them through whatever the future holds? Whether or not the stuff is there, have we equipped them to walk as confident men and women of God who understand who they are, that understand that their identity is rooted in the gospel and that they can move forward in every situation without their identity being wavered by what they have or don't have or what they possess or Their abilities, no, it's deeper. It runs deeper. It's on the rock, a firm foundation. His response in verse 25 in our society sounds ridiculous. And so I beat them and pulled their hair out. What? What are you talking about? Culturally, this was an acceptable way (laughs) to respond. Now, I accessed... A lot of different things. I, I had heard that it was an acceptable response, but I was like, I've got to get to the root of this. There's historical documents, whether it's Josephus or other writings of the time, that talk about societal norms. And I'm here to, to tell you, and you can look for yourself, it was completely acceptable for hair to be pulled out and for people to be beaten to the point where they had visible bruises. Like, that was the intention. And the reason for that was for them to understand that they were carrying the shame of something they had done. So these people weren't running from Nehemiah. They were coming forward to receive the consequences of their action so that they would bear the evidence of their shame. I want to tell you, in today's society, 
we still bear the shame of our consequence. We sometimes carry it as like a badge of honor. It's like we don't want to let ourselves off the hook. We do it in different ways. We do it in different ways where we marginalize or we step ourselves back or we function out of insecurity because we feel like we're not worthy to be a part of this conversation or to speak into this. Why? Because of this shame we carry. It's a lie. It's a lie. So we're not really that far off. I mean, thank God we don't function this way today. I mean, like ridiculous physical abuse. But culturally, it was a way for them to wear their shame so that they would understand. And then it's followed by an oath. Nehemiah is basically saying, fresh start. Fresh start. He's saying, all these things you've done wrong. Now, wear your shame. Bear the consequences. Take an oath. Fresh start. There's only one small problem. I mean, besides the abuse part that we won't dwell on. The small problem is this. The oath he made them take that I read a moment ago, if you've been with us, it might sound familiar to you. Because it's in fact the same oath they voluntarily took in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 30 through 31. I wasn't gonna read it, so it's not projected, but hey, what the heck. If you have scripture journal, turn to page 50, I think. You turn to page, yeah, it is page 50. It says right there, chapter 10, verses 30 through 31. I'll read it. It says, we, this is them saying it, voluntarily, these people say this in Nehemiah chapter 10. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people, the peoples of this land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We swear it. We are so broken and heavy-hearted. We promise we will never do this. And then they do absolutely everything they swore an oath they'd never do. And Nehemiah says, retake the oath that you voluntarily took before. You see, what you may not understand culturally is based on the oath that they took originally. They agreed that they would be murdered if they violated the oath before God. They made an agreement based on their life that they would not violate the Sabbath, that they would not give their daughters and sons to be married to one another. So Nehemiah's shaming of them was actually merciful. He's giving them a fresh start. He's saying, listen, I won't take your life today but you will wear the shame of the decisions that you made to violate the oath that you made before God. And now it is a fresh start. And retake that oath and begin again to, to function in right relationship with the Lord. And you know what? They failed again. <laughs> they did it again. And again and again and again and again and again. And you know why? Because they're flesh and blood humans. And they continue to function in a way where our hearts are idle factories, and we continue to fall victim to the love and the care and the things of this world, and so over and over again, they violated the covenant, and they continued to fail with every fresh start history tells us. 
they continued the cycle. Like the cycle of seasons changing, they failed again. Each time experiencing the shame and the brokenness of their unfaithfulness to a faithful God. And so we're doomed. <laughs> like, what? No. <laughs> it feels that way, right? Like, well, then that's it. Like, we're as human as they are. Like, that's the way I function. That's the way you function. Like, God, I'm not going to do this. God, things are going to change. We're, we're going to reevaluate. We're going to circle the wagons. We're going to have some hard choices. We're going to make some decisions. Like, things are going to change. And then they don't. God could have left them there. God could have left us there. In the cycle. In the endless cycle of our shame and brokenness. But instead. But instead. He stepped into time. And Jesus solved the problem that humanity could not solve in and of itself. Jesus fulfilled our covenant with God, the covenant that we could not keep. He lived the sinless life. And then what does he do? He takes our shame. He takes our shame. And he's what? He's broken on a cross. He takes the shame of the cross and his body is broken for you and me. He died the death that we deserve. And then he has victory over sin and death when he resurrects and he reconnects our relationship with God, not contingent upon our behavior, but contingent upon his behavior. And so now we are children of the living God because Jesus did that which we could not. So our fresh start isn't our best effort. Our fresh start isn't like our commitment to try harder, to be nicer. No. No, our, our fresh start happened at the cross. Our fresh start is done. Our fresh start is us acknowledging the the. The sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf and the freedom that we have, our fresh start means because Jesus was broken, we can be whole. Because Jesus was broken, you don't have to live broken. No, 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 but I have so much shame. No, you don't have to have shame. No, 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 but I I deserve it. I deserve whatever comes my way. No, you don't. Jesus paid the price. No, I want to bear the bruises. I want to bear the evidence. I I deserve the shunning. No, you don't. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says Jesus wore stripes and he was beaten and he was bruised and he took the shame so that we can be whole. Don't settle for a lesser version of your one and only life. Don't buy into the lie that you are less because God says you're beautiful. God says you're worthy. He's gifted you. He's breathed life into you. He's connected you with the relationships that you have for such a time as this. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. No, it's an act of God's grace so that you can be a part of the narrative that he's writing in and around you. We are loved and forgiven with access to God because of what Jesus has done. That is the gospel. And because of the gospel, we are built to be whole. We're built to be whole. You don't have to live fractured. You don't have to live broken. Yeah, but this happened, I know. And God loves you. Yeah, but where was he? 
Where was he? He was walking beside you as sinful people made sinful choices. But he never left you and he never forsake you. In fact, he's redeeming the narrative that is the pain of your life. And now what you thought was brokenness is not only wholeness, it has a name. It's called your testimony. It's called your testimony so that you can look and say, but God was faithful. (laughs) Listen, I know you're in a valley. I know you think you're not gonna get out, but I made it to the other side. And it's because Jesus walked beside me in my darkest of moments. And so you're not alone. And I know it feels like you can't take the breath, that you can't even move on one more day, but God is not gonna leave you. And I'm living evidence walking beside you as well. That is community. That's why we can't live in isolation. That's why we need the body of Christ to link arms and say, you're messed up, so am I. Let's lean into this thing called grace. Because of the gospel, we're built to be whole. So we say every week that the text requires something of us. The question that I want to ask you to consider, that I want you to ask yourself, that I want you to ask one another as you head home this week and as you sit in circles What broken area of my life will I allow God's love to heal? What broken area of my life will I allow God's love to heal? Man, we're so good at building walls. We're so good at like, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. Really? Because it looks like you're about to burst into tears. No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. When will we allow God's love to heal the broken areas of our life. What broken area of my life will I allow God's love to heal? Let's bow. If you bow our heads, if you want, you can close your eyes. You certainly don't have to. I'm having you bow your heads because I want you to focus and I want you not to be distracted as the worship team makes their way up. I want you to consider the broken area of your life and maybe the broken area of your life is that you're still living life for yourself that you really, really think that everything you have is because of your best efforts, that you really think this, this whole life thing, it's contingent upon you. You're sitting on the throne of your own life and you're trying your best to be in control and all that you realize every day is that you're in less control than the day you were before. And so today, if you've never come into relationship with the Lord, I'm not gonna single you out or have you come up or look up or anything like that. Right now, in the quietness of your mind, you can make a decision to come into relationship with God. And there's no special prayer that you need to specifically repeat word for word. It's, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that you are a sinner and an, an, an ability in the, wherever you find yourself to say, God, I'm a sinner, but I know that you died for me. You died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. God, help me to to love others as you've loved me. A prayer something like that that begins a relationship with you and God that acknowledges that which Jesus has done. And if you're praying that prayer for the first time in this space, in this room today, I'd love the opportunity at the conclusion of things. There'll be several people that talk to me about different things at the Next Step area. I wanna welcome you to come talk to me at Next Steps about what is next in your spiritual journey. If you're watching live right now, you can click request prayer. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, you'll go into a private chat with one of our pastors and they'll talk to you about what your next steps are. 
If you're watching or listening later on, you can always reach out via email or through our website. And we'd love to talk to you about next steps because this isn't about an emotional response. This is about a thought through decision to say, I will serve God with my one and only life. For others of us in this space, if you're already in relationship with the Lord, maybe the broken area of your life is this idea that that your efforts will earn you what you need. So you're spinning your wheels, trying harder and doing all that you can to muster the strength and the ability and you're just getting more and more tired with every passing day. You don't know that you have the physical or the emotional bandwidth. And so to you, I would say, maybe the broken area is to rest and heal. Allow the Sabbath to wash over you. Rest in the provision of God. Be aware that God is enough. That your identity is rooted in him. And maybe some of you, you're so broken. You're so broken and, and it seems like the cycle, it just continues. I want to tell you, you can experience the freedom of God's love. If you're just honest about the struggle that you have and you lay it at his feet and say, God, I can't do this myself. And in some cases, depending on on the issue, it requires you to reach out for help. And maybe the help is in this room, but maybe the help is in the hands of a professional. And why did we get to a place where our pride would not allow us to reach out to those that have been equipped to deal with things that we simply don't understand? And there's no shame to go to a professional and say, hey, I can't, I can't sort out what's happening in my mind. I can't sort out the pain that was caused or inflicted by somebody else. Sometimes the broken area of our lives require us to humble ourselves before God so he can direct us to professionals to help us heal. For others of us today, Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, listen, I'm allowing God's love to heal me. And this is a great reminder and it's exciting to know that God is present and that because he was broken, I can be whole. I want to challenge you today, you don't outpace the text. There is something for you today. There's an application for you today. And so even if this is all information you already know to you, I would say, what are you doing missionally? How are you taking this information and saying, okay, if I'm, if I'm laying the broken areas of my life before God, what am I doing to bring others along and to point out that the broken areas of their life don't have to define them? Where am I linking arms with those that need help and providing maybe the story of the testimony of my life so that they can be energized by the reality that God is present in their life? So maybe to you, it looks like applying this missionally. I want us to reflect on what area of our life we will allow God's love to heal as I welcome Eric to come forward and to lead us into a time of communion. As we conclude this series in the great book of Nehemiah, I want us to reflect on the beginning of our story where there were exiles in a broken down city Uh, with no buildings and no walls to speak of, living among rubble, essentially abandoned. Uh, 
And there's another prophet around that time by the name of Isaiah, and he writes something <clears throat> pretty unique. As these people were wondering, where's God in all of this? Where's God in my brokenness? He wrote, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. You got to imagine hearing that, thinking, good news, what kind of good news? God has essentially abandoned us because things are not going the way that we expected them to. And Isaiah paints a picture of one who would come bringing good news, calling their feet beautiful, not because their feet are beautiful, but because the news that they brought was beautiful. And the news was this, that there is, <clears throat> there is a king. He's on the throne. And despite what our world <clears throat> looks like, despite what your world looks like, there's hope. And then Isaiah would continue to go on to talk about this one who would come and like Claude already mentioned, <clears throat> would bear the shame on our behalf. So the marks of our shame would be given to him. So you fast forward a few hundred years later and we see a man named Jesus about to experience the worst hours of his entire life. Experience the crux of eternity on humanity. And he gathered his friends together. He knew this was going to be his last meal with them. And he essentially said that. He essentially said, things aren't going to be the way that you may have envisioned them, but there is a hope. There is a plan. There is a king. You see, anytime the word euangelion uh, was named good news, uh, translated into Greek, it was announcing that a king had arrived uh, to continue a kingdom or to advance a kingdom or to declare a new kingdom. Jesus is doing that as he meets with his friends. He says, uh, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks for the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say something really exciting is about to happen. <laughs> he didn't say, I'm very, very excited for what's about to take place in the next few hours. He said his body would be broken but he invited his friends to enter into that story. Because of his brokenness, we can become whole. Because he bore in his body our shame, we can now have healing. We can now have hope. And that's what we do as we approach the communion table together. So if you have that wafer, or if you're at home and you have a different emblem, can we partake together this symbol of the Lord's broken body? So they continued their meal together. And then after the meal, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wasn't the new covenant in the riches that he had in store underneath this chair? <laughs> it wasn't through uh, the political power that he was about to yield. No, it was through shedding his blood that this new covenant would arrive on the scene. Claude preached about it. Uh, at length today saying that uh, even though things aren't the way you want them to be there is a peace there is a hope there is a joy that comes from knowing that your bad decision your broken dream is not the end of the story but just the beginning of a testimony 
So can we together uh, partake of this symbol of the Lord's broken body shed on our behalf, or this blood shed on our behalf? And we give you thanks and praise today, Lord God, that we can partake together these emblems of brokenness, knowing full well that they mean that we can be restored. Lord, I thank you so much that the beginning of the story was broken down rubble, and the end of the story is glory, not because of the work that we've done, but because of the work that Jesus has done. And we celebrate that fact today, Lord God. We celebrate with our singing, but we celebrate with our lives today and ask that you would do with them whatever you will in Jesus' name.
What if the cycle we found ourselves in was less about our shame and more about our reliance on the gospel? That at every turn, the cycle we found ourselves in was just to run to the Lord in every situation, in every heartache. 
Listen, if you're sitting there and saying, yeah, it's too late. It's too late. I want to tell you that's a lie. You can leverage your life starting today because of the gospel. Fresh start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we declare ourselves available. We lay all that we are, all that you've entrusted to us, all the responsibility, all the influence, all, all the gifts, all the grace, Lord, all the things that, that are in proximity to us, God, we give it all back to you and we pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that we would make choices based on your will and that we would rest in you. We would trust you, God. We would sense your presence. Father, that as we leave this place, we would leave this place sent on mission by the living God, fully loved. Lord, we thank you and we praise you because you're worthy to be praised. We ask you be with us as we go our separate ways and bring us together safely next week. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Next week we begin a new series. It's going to be in the book of Galatians. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be great. So we'll see you next week. Eric's available. If you need prayer for anything, I'll be at the Next Steps area. In the show.